Okay, today we're going to look at Psalm 22. We're in the middle of, uh, well, we're toward the end of a, a series in Psalms or a theme of Psalms. And we titled it, um, The Mirror to Our Souls or The Mirror for Our Souls, with the idea that whenever we're looking through the Psalms, we capture a picture of us. And we're going to do the same today in Psalm 22. We're going to take a look at it. Look how Psalm 22 opens up. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Heard those words before? The moment I read this psalm, what do you think of? Crucifixion, right? Isn't that what you think of? Yes. So I'm going to caution you to slow down a little bit. Slow down. Yes, Jesus did use this psalm, and we're going to look at that. But remember, first and foremost, these psalms, they're there to help us connect and make sense of a real true God who is acting in our lives, who's involved and engaged in our lives, often in ways that don't make sense to us. And this is first and foremost a lament psalm. So when I read this, you're going to see all kinds of stuff that's familiar at the cross. In fact, uh, one scholar said it's almost like whoever wrote this psalm, David, was standing there at the cross watching it. That's how familiar it is because it's quoted all through the Gospels. So pause on that. Just push the pause button and listen to it for what it's intended to be, a lament. Somebody that is struggling struggling deeply. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you don't even answer. I cry out by night, but I find no rest. You ever been there? Right away, I bet we connected with a whole bunch of things. Some of you are there now. Where are you, God? Where are you? Yes, this was Jesus' words on the cross. And yes, he has, as the author of Hebrews says, gone through everything that you have gone through, including feeling that distance from God the Father. Why have you forsaken me? Why me? Why me? Now follow along. Just be patient if you're in the middle of this. He does what I do, and he does what many of you do. The first thing he says is, you are the one that's enthroned as the holy one. You are the one that Israel praises. Isn't that, don't we say that? God, you're the one that I come to. If I don't come to you, who can I come to? You're the only one that understands. You're the only one that can help me here. That's what he's saying. When you, our ancestors, put their trust, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. Insult to me, I do. For I am a worm, a burial man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. Can you hear underneath all that, that pleading of the Lord? Lord, you're the only one that gets this. You're the only one that understands this. All who seek me, they mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You ever been mocked by your friends? I understand it when I'm mocked by the world. What surprises me when I'm mocked by Christians? That's happened more than once. Yet, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me. For trouble is near and there is no one to help. Again, you feel it? Lord, you're the one that put me 
then he goes through these, these long section where he starts talking about his enemies. In verse 12, he calls them bulls. In verse 16, he calls them gods. In verse 13, he calls them lions. These are the ones that are coming after him. That's how he describes his enemies, those who are mocking him. When you look at the life of David, there are plenty of places in his life where he could have written this psalm. We don't know where he wrote it. But there are plenty of places where his life was on the line and he barely escaped with his life, barely escaped with his clothing, much less his life. That's how close it was. And he's calling all of his enemies these names. But then he says in verse 19, But you, Lord, do not be far from me, because you are my strength. Come quickly to help me. So after he reviews what's going on in his life, like we do, Lord, look what's happening to me. We come right back to the Lord. We can't help it. Deliver me, verse 20. Rescue me, verse 21. Verse 22, this is how he concludes this psalm. And then we're going to look at what happens in just a second. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you descendants of Jacob. Honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. And he goes on down, verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations bow down, will bow down before him. What he's saying here is, you're the one that put me here. You're the one that put me in this spot. It's okay to blame God. I have no problem with that. God figured out to be my Lord. You're the one that put me here. Somehow, you're going to use this for your good. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that in everything that happens to you, this is the New Testament version, in everything that happens to you, this includes financial issues, in everything that happens to you, God will use it for his glory, for your good? It's hard to believe that in the middle of the pandemic. And yet that's what he says. Some of you were here a few weeks ago when I shared my own story out of Psalm 5, saying goodbye to my first wife. Glenn died. Another part of the story, which you don't know, was she was relentless in showing me doctors. Every doctor that walked through that door got to hear about her. Every nurse that walked through the door, every specialist, one of the first words is, you know Jesus? Huh? Are you a Christian? You know Jesus? Well, no. Why not? That was just the way she was. And her doctor, right at the very end, said, uh, Judy, you're getting close to death, and I want you to... Um, visit with one of the psychiatrists here tonight. She goes, I don't want to talk to a psychiatrist. And he goes, I'm not giving you a choice. Back then, doctors had a little more power. So he, he left, and she said, I don't want to talk to a psychiatrist. I said, what? What do you got to lose? Just talk to the guy. So I got to be there when she did. And <laughs> it happened to be the chairman of the uh, psychiatric department. He's an older guy, gray hair like me. He walks in, he sits down, and it was the classic, just what you would expect to have happen with a psychiatrist. He just sits down, and he just goes, just the stereotype, right? And he said, so Judy, how do you feel about dying? And she goes, I feel great about dying. How do you feel about dying? And he said, well, no, 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 we're not here to talk about me. She goes, well, who made those rules? You ask me a question, I ask you a question. It's that simple. So how do you feel about dying? And he said, I, I, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. And she said, maybe you should going to happen one day 
And so, uh, I've had the privilege of being married to two fantastically wonderful, feisty women. And so, um, so as they went on, she shared the gospel with him. So he asked her, would you be willing to go and uh, let's do pizza in front of all my psychiatric students? So she said, and I said, oh, okay. So he wheeled her in a wheelchair over to the auditorium, and I got to just sit up in the top. There was about 70 or 80 psychiatric students there. They sat on the stage, and it was identical. I said, Judy, how do you feel about dying? I feel fine. How do you feel about dying? They just repeated it almost verbatim, and I've laughed about that over the years from almost uh, from 32 and a half years. Um, I've laughed about that. How many of those psychiatric students got to hear the gospel, and how many of their lives changed? Okay, fast forward 30 years, so we're now a couple years back, three years, well, four years back, I guess, somewhere in there, and um, I'm down at um, one of the hospitals in Denver where her, her chief doctor, the pulmonology doctor, was, and I looked him up, and he's now the chairman of the, the department, and so I went up to his the floor where he was, and I asked, and I hadn't seen him in 30 years, and I asked the, the lady at the front desk, is Dr. So-and-so here? And she said, well, yeah, but he's really busy. Do you have, do you have an appointment? And I said, no, 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 I, I don't have an appointment. And she said, uh, are you a friend or something? I said, no, I'm not a friend. I said, I, uh, 30 years ago, he, he took care of my wife and delivered my little girl. And uh, my wife had cystic fibrosis. And this lady said, Judy had it. I said, how do you know that? And she said, because uh, I was brand new at this church that now is at, and I don't see Bill anywhere. He's not going to have enough people. So he comes out. My now he's much, much older and uh, nearing retirement. And he comes out, and the first thing he says is, how's your daughter? And I said, she's fine. I've got three grandkids. You're my grandkids, healthy as could be. And he said, he said to me, and I'm thinking of these words, because every day, every day, my wife said, do you know Jesus yet? No. Do you know Jesus yet? <laughs> so he said to me 30 years later, I returned to my faith and became a Christian because of your love. I will declare your news to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and sing to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. That's why he does what he does in our lives. This is love. It's all going to turn out to be a blessing. Sometimes it's a happy step, sometimes it's not. It's deeply staggering and traumatic, but in the long run, he does it so that other people will come to know him. Suffering is the one language we share. It's the one language we share with the world. They get that. When we struggle, when we lose people, when we go through tragedy, they understand that. What they don't understand is how we do it by faith. That's what they don't get. When we live by faith and we have confidence in the Lord, as painful as it is, then that's when we begin to speak a new language to people that don't know him. my testimony finished. One of my friends is dying from stage four lung cancer. She's young. She's a small girl. And I asked her how she's processing it with her boys. She said, I could get angry. I could do that. 
I could get depressed. I could cry. That's all human. The problem is that it's not all redeemed humanity. The greatest gift I can leave my boys right now, I won't forget this, but the greatest gift I can leave my boys is I believe in the redeemer. That's the greatest gift. And that's what this psalm is declaring. Now, this psalm is used of Jesus. No question about that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the authors of the, all the Gospels, all of them, repeat parts of this psalm to help us connect with what Jesus went through. Because that's the argument of Hebrews, is that we have a Savior who has been through everything that you have been through. He gets it. He understands. He understands. That's why they did that. So what we tend to do is look at the psalm and say, that's prophecy. No, no, that's the wrong approach. Look at the psalm for what it is. It's a psalm describing the plight of broken humanity. We are desperate, aren't we? We are broken people. We're desperate. And Jesus used the same psalm to describe his own experience. The experience is that we go through. Guys, where are you? Where are you? I know. I've used a picture. I don't know if this is helpful or not. But sometimes when you walk out, when you get up in the morning and head into your day, God doesn't show up. He just doesn't seem to be there. Something happens and where are you, God? I picture it this way. You have a parent standing, looking around the corner at a freeway, watching you. Sometimes the parent just gets out of the way. The child's safe. They're under the will of the parent. They're not in any danger. But they just back out of the way and let them kind of stumble and fall as they learn to walk. And that's what happens when God steps out of the way. He doesn't disappear. He's just quietly in the shadows watching what's happening with you. That's what he's doing. Why would he do that? Because that's the moment that your faith becomes real. There is no shortcut for testing of your faith. There isn't. If your faith is never tested, surely an academic exercise. It has to be tested for you to become convinced that you actually believe. God's not doing it for his benefit. He already knows you. He doesn't do it for your benefit. I mean, for his benefit, he does it for your benefit. That's why he does it. And this is what this psalm is arguing. If you can be patient and wait until the end, then you have those rewards. Now, here's how the author of Hebrews used it. I just love this. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. It is not to the angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for them? We looked at this one a few weeks ago when we looked at Psalm 8, because this is a quote of Psalm 8. You made them, including the son of man, Jesus, you made Jesus a little lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honor, and you put everything under his feet, or his feet. This is a statement about Jesus. You subjected Jesus through tragedy. Here's what that means. He became lower than the angels. This one true living God. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we don't see all this. We don't understand everything that's subject to them. But we see, do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the gospel, folks. This is the lament. This is the lament. He put Jesus through the tragedy. He put him through the ringer so that we would not taste death. 
but he's turning to them. Jesus must be their king. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything should exist, or does exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. He had to be converted. He had to experience the one thing he had never experienced, your life, my life. And so Jesus went through the tragedy of tragedies. That's the lament. That's Psalm 5. That's Psalm 22. That's every single next psalm in the Psalms is a picture of what Jesus went through. And honestly, it's a picture of what you go through. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are the same, one of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And then he quotes Psalm 22. Jesus says, these are Jesus' words. He's putting the Psalm 22 on the mouth of Jesus on his lips. I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in them. And again, he says, here I am, the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their ministry so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Do you hear those words? I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. That's how the psalm ends. That's how the psalm ends. That's how Judy's life, that's one of the endings. There are several, but that's one of them. Where God, her own doctor, would return to faith because of her. Her willingness to go through. Her prayer all along was not that God would heal her. That was my prayer. Her prayer all along that God would glorify himself through whatever he chose to do. And that's what he did. And that's what he did through Jesus. And that's what he does through you. Psalm 22, your psalm. It's also Jesus' psalm, but it's your psalm. All these have said to me, God, why? Why me? And at the end of the psalm, now I get it. So that I can declare your praises to the people around me who don't know you. That's why you did it. That's why you did it. By the way, because some reason he blesses you. So you can declare his praises to the people around who don't get it. Remember, suffering is one of the languages we share with the world. They get that. What they don't get and what the crowd gets is a faith that's genuine and trusts in the Lord Jesus. I believe in the risen Lord Jesus. I'm not stupid. My faith is real. I hope yours is too. And if your faith is being tested right now, let God have his way. Let him test it. He wants to test it. Your faith will be tested. Father, thank you. Thank you for this wonderful psalm. Somebody so many years ago, <laughs> 3,000 years ago now, went through a part of life that I connect with. It makes sense to me. Oh, I don't understand the cultural world that he lives in. It's not part of my world. But I understand the pain of loneliness. I understand the pain of desperation. I understand, Lord, the, the pain of uh, relying on you and needing you and you not appearing to be there. Jesus, thank you for your integration of that love into our lives as we need it. You can cry out, and my tongue rises with brokenness, but not so comfortable to you. And thank you that in the end, my faith would be stronger, and then you would use my testimony 
bring the truth about Jesus to a wider audience. And I thank you, Lord, for that.